The following program was pre-recorded on WFAN. It's time for Hello, My Name is Craig, our weekly candid conversation about gambling addiction. It's supported by the Council on Compulsive Gambling of New Jersey, 800-GAMBLER. Now, here's Craig Carton. Good morning and welcome to another edition of Hello, My Name is Craig. Craig Carton with you and as always from the New Jersey Council on Compulsive Gambling, our dear friend Dan Trelaro. Danny, good morning. How are you? I'm well, Craig. Good morning. Good morning. For the next half hour, a honest, open, frank conversation about gambling addiction, about the uh, the highs and lows of uh, the life of a gambler, and the reality that there is hope out there. And as bad as things may seem today, there is a light at the end of that tunnel. And I'm thrilled that joining us today is uh, Dave Yeager. Dave, uh, for more than a decade, was with the United States Army, but has also seen the downsides and been uh, on the slippery slope of gambling addiction, and we're thrilled to be able to have him join us today and to hear his story. Dave, good morning. How are you? Oh, good morning, Craig. I'm doing great, and thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, I was reading a little bit about your background, and for I don't know why it never dawned on me, but you know, gambling addiction is a, is a problem amongst our, our veterans, and it's something I never considered. Where you know the uh, rate of gambling addiction amongst veterans is significantly higher uh, of that of just the uh, you know common folk uh, Americans across the country. That's true, yeah? Yeah, it absolutely is true, and it's even higher among those with uh, PTSD and combat PTSD specifically. Absolutely. And is the reasoning behind that that you know, gambling for them as it is for us is a an escape, a way to avoid you know, tough emotions and situations that you know, bring about bad feelings? That's one of the primary reasons, and then the other reason is is because it's so prevalent and available within the military, you know, one of the things that, that happens in the military is you get a lot of downtime, and people don't realize that. Um, and during those downtimes, they can get filled with, you know, since you're in the field, you're not going to have alcohol readily available. They tend to be filled with gambling activities. So there's a lot of availability coupled with a lot of stress and a lot of coping. So, yeah, absolutely. So let me ask you to personalize that. You are a compulsive gambler, as I am and Dan is. What's your story? When uh, when did you start to gamble, and uh, how old were you when it became problematic? Well, it started for me, and I can tell you when I the day I think it started, which was in November of two thousand one, uh, a month and a half after the events of nine eleven. Uh, I got stationed in, came down on orders to go to Korea, to South Korea. Uh, at the time, I was under a lot of stress. I was, at the time, arguing with my ex-wife. I was leaving my two young kids. It was right after 9-11. There was a lot going on. Flew over to Korea. Uh, time changed. So now I'm jet-lagged. I'm tired. I'm stressed. They put me up in a really nice hotel right on the base in, in Seoul. was walking around the hotel and found a casino-style slot room, which, at the time, didn't really impact me because I had gambled in Atlantic City, when I was younger, never really had a big issue with it. So I decided I'd go ahead, take some money out, sit down, gamble. I had nothing better going on. I was tired, but I wasn't sleepy. Um, so I sat down and I started to play the slots that were in there and made what I think is the biggest mistake a budding compulsive gambler can make. And I, and I won. I hit some money. And it was not a thunderous amount of money. But it was enough that in that moment I could feel all of that stress, I could feel all of that tension start to melt away as I was sitting in that room, and I immediately wanted more. Hmm. So um, did you start? Yeah. Did you start going to that casino or others more frequently, or was it sitting around on the base with the guys and trying to kill time and? 
playing spades and you know poker and other games? Uh, mostly for me, it was the slot rooms. I can tell you, in many overseas bases, and there is uh, the Morale, Welfare, and Recreation offers these slot rooms as an entertainment source, which for ninety plus percent of us is not a bad thing. Um, so I found myself gradually, and it it actually was more quickly than gradually, kind of becoming more and more drawn to these rooms because I was there by myself. I was acclimating to a new environment. Um, you know, it just mostly the slot rooms were what pulled me in. I did not get involved in a whole lot of, say, card games or anything like that. I knew about ones that were going on, right? but I, I was not really a part of that. I was more, I guess what you would call an escape gambler. I more like to isolate myself, pull myself away from everybody and just go into that slot room. See, that's interesting to me because I would think the military itself, you know, especially in, uh, on foreign soil, lends itself to the fraternity, the camaraderie amongst the guys, you know, fellow American men and women who are stationed overseas, that there's an immediate camaraderie, and you seem you avoided that. Uh, and make no mistake, it was more Jekyll and Hyde, because during the day when I was doing my job, there absolutely was a team unity and camaraderie. I was a squad leader, and we trained together all the time, we worked together all the time, we were in the field together all the time. So as a, you know, during my day-to-day functions, it was as much a team environment as you can imagine. But when I was off duty, when I was not around them, I wanted to be alone. I wanted to isolate. I wanted to be away from that. I did hang out with them on occasion. We right. would have nights where we'd go and we would hang out, and I drank. And I can still drink to this day safely, thank goodness. Um, but, but I would drink with them, and we'd go out and hang out. But it, it, as the year went on, more and more I would pull myself away from that and say, no, I can't hang out tonight. I've got something to do and I would find myself in that slot room. Now, Dan, let me ask you about that. Uh, we have yet to talk to the compulsive gambler who's the opposite. I was a uh, uh, a guy that wanted to be alone. You wanted to be alone. Dave wants to be alone. All the guests we've had on at some point wanted to do it alone. So there's commonality in that. Is there, yeah. and I'm sure there are outliers to everything, but that's more the norm than the compulsive gambler that wants to do it in a group setting, right? Yeah, that's what we see a lot of times. And Dave, thank you for your service. And, you know, you shared something earlier when you were deployed in November, because, you know, having worked downtown on September 11th and lost a number of friends, you know, I can I can just just appreciate what you're sharing. And, and thank you. And and Craig, you're right. You know, the the powerful nature of addiction, it's isolating in nature. You know, addiction wants to take us into a corner, isolate us from other people and just kick the crap out of us. And when we're in a group setting with other people gambling, we're worried about stigma. We're worried about how it looks. What's the perception? You know, but when I'm, when I'm by myself, I can slowly destroy myself. You could do that. Dave could do that. Because I don't want to have judgment from other people. I just want to be by myself, in my thoughts, in this quote-unquote safe bubble, this safe place. And I can make the decisions that I want to make. I don't have to worry about judgment or anything else. So that is one of the very common telltale signs of a person who has a gambling problem is the isolation. So, Dave, I wonder, how long did it take for the gambling to become problematic for you in, in terms of you know, doing your duties as a member of the military? Or were you able to always separate the two? No, I wasn't. It was... I was in Korea for a year and it wasn't even halfway through. I wasn't even at my mid tour leave when I was already calling home and making excuses to get more money. I was already saying that I had meetings to go to when I would pull out, and go to the slot room. 
Um, and before I left that peninsula, I was borrowing money from my subordinates. Um, and I can talk about this now because it's all behind me, but I actually stole money from my own unit um, and lost rank because of that. Um, so it did not even take a year for it to get to the point where it impacted my ability to do my job. So you got caught doing those things or eventually you hit rock bottom, had no more, nowhere else to go for money and how to kind of admit those things because you had no other outlet. It it reached a point where they were investigating the stolen money. um, And I could have actually, believe it or not, I could have quote unquote gotten away with it, but I turned myself in before they even came to me because of the guilt that I felt for what I had done. I've reached a point where, I didn't really know what was going on. I just knew that it was getting out of control and I needed help. So I actually went to them and said, I am the one who did this and here's why. And because I could not control myself. And does the, does the military have some type of uh, help center for, for gambling addicts? No. Um, no. Here's, here's the issue that I ran into is they did not know what to do with me. It, it was so weird because by the time I left the peninsula, by the time I left Korea, um, I had disciplinary action done. I lost rank, um, but yet I got a very good evaluation going out because everything else that I was doing to that point was was good. I had created a training system that was actually being adopted throughout my unit on the peninsula. So it was almost, it was again, it was very Jekyll and Hyde. There was a lot of good going on, but then there was this other part going on. My commander saw it as a, a, a problem that impacted me, but not as me being a bad person. But nobody could put the term gambling addiction to it. Nobody could speak to me in terms that I could understand. I'm going to stop you right there because we do have to take a quick break. We'll continue on. Dave Yeager, a veteran who's in recovery and also an advocate now for uh, gaming problems among vets and military personnel. And as always, Dan Trelaro, New Jersey Council on Compulsive Gambling. This is Hello, My Name is Craig. We continue on right after this. Back to more of Hello, My Name is Craig on The Fan with your host, Craig Carton, and supported by the Council on Compulsive Gambling of New Jersey, 800-GAMBLER. Welcome back now to Hello, My Name is Craig. Uh, Craig Carton, along with Dan Trelaro, 800-GAMBLER, which is the New Jersey Council on Compulsive Gambling, and Dave Yeager, a veteran, sharing his story. So... Were you discharged from the military, or when they found out that you had stolen money from the unit, did they uh, place you somewhere else? I actually just, that time I just lost rank. I actually was eventually put out of the military because of my gambling addiction. Um, A few years later, I had done it again. I stole from my unit, and I actually had uh, a self-harm attempt that put me into an acute psych ward. Um, near where I was stationed, and sure enough, they came right into that psych ward, which was a civilian psych ward, uh, sat in the conference room, and actually demoted me and told me I was getting put out of the Army while I was still in uh, acute care. (laughs) And if you don't mind sharing, because I think this is important, you know, we talk about mental health a lot, Dan and I, and we're aware of the the suicide rates amongst gambling addicts. Do you mind uh, talking a little bit about that? No, I don't mind talking at all. That was the first of four attempts for me. First of four uh, attempts. And correct. was the was the mindset, I don't want to wake up tomorrow because the demons had gotten too big, the debt had gotten too big, the embarrassment or shame? What was the, do you remember with clarity now why? It was a combination of all that plus um, how could anybody possibly understand what I was going through, what the hell's wrong with me, Um you know, I can't fix this. I don't know how to fix this, and it's never going to get better. 
And you attempted to take your own life while with the U.S. Army? Correct. Wow. So now I'm always fascinated by by this story, and I think it's an important story to tell. Did you write a note? Was there a message to your wife or kids at the time, or was it just also overwhelming that you just said, I just don't want to live? It was so overwhelming. There was no note. There was no contact. There was no anything. I didn't get contact until I woke up in the acute psych the next day. Um, I was medicated. I was half out of it. And my wife at the time had actually called through my unit. My unit contacted her, and then she called the, the facility that I was in. And I had my first conversation with her the morning after, and I was in, half incoherent. I had no idea what I was even saying to her through that whole first conversation. So, no, there was no attempt to contact. I just wanted it done. Was there any feeling afterwards, well, I'm glad it didn't work? I'm glad uh, I didn't do it? Yes. Yeah, I, I have two young children, and in hindsight, and in starting to get into therapy at that time, you know, at least there was that sense of, okay, that would have been selfish for me to follow through with that. Now, that didn't stop me in future attempts, but at least for that moment, it kind of curbed what I was doing. So through this, was there ever a point when you had to come clean to your wife or to your close friends or family who now know that you try to take your own life as the causal reasons to why? I never told my full story to my ex-wife. She never heard the whole story from me. And I, and part of it may have been because she didn't want to know. Um, part of it may have been because I was unwilling to tell the whole story uh, because I, I, maybe I wanted to leave that door open. I can tell you this, when I had my relapse um, in 2020 or the beginning of 2020, my wife, the woman I'm married to now, I told her everything. I told my family everything. I came as completely clean as you possibly could. And it made a huge difference. It was night and day. Yeah, I'm sure. Like, do you regret not telling your uh, first wife that or your family that when you look back on it? I, I do. She actually found out the whole story by reading my book. So I, I regret the fact that she had to find out that way versus hearing it from me directly. Sure. And what's the, if you don't mind me asking, what's the relationship like now? Um, with me and her, we're, we're friends. We get along well. Um, uh, because of our kids, we do it for our kids and now my granddaughter. Uh, she's since remarried and has a happy life with her family. I've remarried. I have a happy life with, with my wife. We're still working through my relapse and the things that happened from it, but we're getting along really well. So I would say it's much better than it was. I honestly, I lost contact with my children for two years straight because of my addiction. Sure. And Dan, we yeah. talk about that a lot, that the hardest yeah. step, the first step is the step of honesty. Yeah, the honesty with others, the honesty with, with yourself. And it, it's hard to take that step because of, to Dave's point, you know, I don't feel as if I'm worthy. You know, I, I'm not worthy of love. I'm not worthy of patience, of kindness, of understanding. It's those views of I'm not worthy enough. And, and being honest and vulnerable with another person coming out of addiction. And then layer that on with serving overseas, trauma, combat, you know, the stress of being on a day-to-day basis, not knowing what's going to happen, there's a lot to unpackage and unravel from that. But the honesty is always step one with yourself and with the family. Yeah, listen, we could probably spend two hours talking to you, so I do want to apologize to the audience. If we're not going in-depth on a lot of these very important topics, time just doesn't allow it today, but perhaps in the future we can sit down for a more long-form interview. You know, One of the, the things I stress on this show is that for people that are just now – entering step one 
of uh, recovery, of wanting to get help, or finding out today that a loved one has a problem, that there is light at the end of the tunnel. Now, I wonder how you feel about that specific concept, considering you know you relapsed in 2020 and you did try to take your life on multiple occasions. As you sit here today, do you believe that's the right message, and do you see that light? I not only believe it, I stand behind it firmly. I I have a very, very, very different life than I did uh, through my relapse and through my addiction. Um, I've stayed connected to my recovery. You know, I have a very, very good support system. I have a family that supports me. I've started to kind of, for myself, uncover the things that are behind the addiction. Uh, I am more solid in myself than I've been in my entire adult life. So I 100% stand behind what you say. There's There's hope out there for people. And you're not alone, that's for sure. And in regards to military men and women that may not be at the level you were at, but are certainly experiencing some type of uh, gambling addiction situations, uh, is there a program now? Is the military open, as far as you know, to hearing your story and sharing it so that other active or your former members of the military recognize that they can get help? Not that I'm aware of, Craig. I, I, that's what I work to do every single day is to bring awareness to the fact that military careers and military lives can be saved if there's something available to these guys early enough that they can catch it, say something, and start to do something about it before they reach the stage even that I reached where I lost my career, I lost my marriage, I lost contact with my kids. Um, it's so important that these guys have somewhere to go. One of the problems is there's a stigma that they fear if they say something that their career is going to be hurt by doing it. You know, I've said many times on this show and, and I think in the documentary that there was a part of my life where I had great shame. You know, I, I didn't want to admit that I was a gambling addict. I didn't want to admit that I wanted to jump off uh, a chairlift in, in uh, British Columbia. I didn't want to admit these things. I was embarrassed by them and had great shame and it wasn't until I took ownership that I had a problem and owned it and believe it, uh, as opposed to just paying lip service to it, that the shame melted away. And I wonder what your journey was like, you know, having, you know, taken multiple attempts to end your life to where you are today and, and how you shedded the shame that was associated with both the addiction, the behavior that was associated with the addiction and your desire not to live. To be honest with you, the biggest way that I shed all that was just to talk about it. Um, one of the biggest things that I've found for my life and my recovery and my health was telling my story. Because the more I tell my story, the more I talk about how I feel about it, the more I'm able to unravel it and the more I'm able to bring it out from inside of me to outside of me. Because if I leave it inside, it can swirl up and become a whole lot of things that it's not. But if I talk about it and I do what I'm doing today and tell my story and I talk about the shame and the guilt and the embarrassment that I went through, it takes the sting out of the shame and the guilt and the embarrassment. And it tells me that underneath of that, there's a decent human being who deserves to be here, who deserves to grow and live. What about the people that say, ah, oh, you're full of it. You know, you did wrong. You stole from uh, the, the military, from your own unit. Uh, you're a bad guy. I, I deal with that, you know, on a daily basis. There are some people that don't want to hear about, you know, you know, the attempts I've made to right the wrongs that I uh, committed and to move life forward and to start doing the right thing all the time. How do you respond to those people? I say to them that, that if that's how you feel, you're right. Um, you're entitled to your opinion. You're entitled to how you feel. I know where I stand. I know who I am. I know the human being that I am. The people that are close to me and that, that you know, are open to who I am, they see it. 
Um, I'm not going to walk around and have a parade in my own honor. You choose how you feel. I'm just going to, I'm going to do me. Dan, what's your take on that? Or, or is there an official yeah. stance on that? No, I mean, I, I, I agree with both of you because I've, I've, I remember when, when all the news came out for all the stuff I had done, I had people in the UK that I had never met before in my life, people in Ohio judging me that I had never even met. Because when you do something wrong, the, the, the bandwagon starts and they're piling on. And, you know, Dave's spot on. You know, when we get a little bit smaller and we let other things get a little bit bigger, right, our ego gets smaller, life starts to fall into place. And the more you can share and get rid of that stigma and the guilt and just be open about it, we're reducing the stigma on a weekly basis on this show and around the country. Dave does a lot of talks on podcasts, has a book. You know, we're out there trying to help give a voice to people who might be a little nervous. And talking about it matters. Dave, you're so spot on. When you take it from the inside and put it on the outside, it's maybe not as bad as it seems when we just keep it contained, but it can really turn into something ugly if we don't talk about it. I think I'd be remiss if I didn't ask this question. Um, When you gambled again in 2020, have you figured out why you did that and what was happening in your life that made you go back down a road you know is bad for you? Yeah, first of all, I'm going to tell you that the number one mistake I made was not staying connected to my recovery. Yeah. Um, when I got into recovery, I went through the VA's gambling treatment program in Cleveland, which, by the way, is a phenomenal program. It's the oldest residential gambling treatment program in the world. Um, it's fantastic. Let me just say something uh, about that. Uh, in Prescott, Arizona, where I went to a lot of meetings when I was in rehab out there, it was at a VA center in Prescott, Arizona, and they are amazing people. I agree with you. I, I assume that's universal, but I do have some experience with the VA out in Arizona, and they were amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, but to, to continue with that, the mistake I made is after I got out of that, I was going to GA meetings, I was going to my aftercare plan, and I started feeling really good with myself. I started feeling like I had my feet under me, like I was myself again. And I had this I got it mentality of I don't need the meetings anymore. I don't need the aftercare. I've got this on lockdown. Um, That was mistake number one. Um, But I think the underlying thing was still my unwillingness to really kind of share who I was and become vulnerable about who I am as a person. I always wanted to keep everything bottled up and not share it. Um, I didn't like making mistakes. I was very perfectionist and guarded. And because of all that, I hit everything. And because I hit everything, I felt like I needed to go, you know, I felt like I needed an outlet and gambling was my outlet. Well, the more I talk about myself and the more I let myself be vulnerable, and the more I talk about the mistakes I make, and I actually now purposely make small mistakes just to allow myself to make them, the less desire I have to go that route because the more, the stronger I become in who I am, you know, and allowing myself to be a little vulnerable. So that, and I stay connected to my recovery now. I stay strongly connected uh, to my meetings, to my support groups, to the podcasts that I do, um, and to the advocacy work. And real quick, because I know we got to wrap it up here uh, this morning, life is good now, and you can say that message out there as bad as it was when you were in your darkest moment, you've gotten to a place where life is actually good and you look forward to waking up, yes? Absolutely, yeah. It's not perfect. Nobody's life is perfect, but I can tell you what, I can handle the imperfections. My life is very good now. Well, Dave, I appreciate you coming on. The name of the book is Be Happy with Crappy, A Journey Through Trauma, Addiction, Rock Bottom, and Recovery. Dave is an 11-year veteran of the United States Army, and I really appreciate you sharing your story. I think more stories like yours need to be told, especially for people that are in it, in the middle of it right now, that don't know about the light at the end of the tunnel, or that life can be good again. And I think it's a very powerful message, and I appreciate you sharing with us this morning. Thank you so much. 
Thank you. Thank you very much. Dan, as always, appreciate you. 800-GAMBLER, and that's the New Jersey Council on Compulsive Gambling. We'll do it again next Saturday. Coming up next is Kim Jones. Have a great weekend here on Sports Radio 1019 FM, The Fan.